handed down from the prophets of old, comes the word of the Lord, the God who speaks, who hath always spoken. Now we gather round His word, hear His voice ring out, come and learn of His love, hear His message and rejoice. For He has not played dumb, He has shown us His heart. When we read His word, we hear our Father's voice. So, our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are gathered around your word and we can hear your voice this morning. We ask that the Spirit of your Son will be at work in each and every one of us, that we may indeed be those who listen to your word, repent and believe and grow in faith, that you may be glorified as your church matures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Bible tells us that if you are a Christian, your name is written in heaven, right? Last week, we heard Jesus telling his early followers, chapter 10, verse 20, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Jesus was saying, yes, I know that you are thrilled and you are rejoicing for you can now subdue demons, you can subdue serpents and scorpions because of me. But most importantly, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, the question I have for everyone this morning is this. There are many things that Christians can rejoice over. But how often do you find Christians rejoicing that their names are written in heaven? As Christians, do you often think and rejoice about this truth? And this perhaps prompts us to ask a further question. What is there to rejoice about it in the first place? That my name is written in heaven? I know it's meant to be great, but what makes it so great? And if it is so great, wouldn't I always rejoice in it? Well, keep this question in mind, and we will come back to it at the end. This morning, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, which comes soon after Jesus spoke about the names written in heaven. So you can keep your Bible open to Luke chapter 10, and we'll be looking at that. And you have a sermon outline as well that you can follow the flow of the passage. Well, the passage first and foremost itself is fairly straightforward. It is very short, and it seems to be a nice stand-alone story on its own. Basically, a lawyer came up to Jesus and posted him a question. Now, this kind of lawyer is not the Swaran kind of lawyer that we know. <laughs> All right? It refers to a Jew who is expert in the Jewish law or the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. He asked Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus got him to recall and to recite the law which he knew. And he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then Jesus said, That's right. Go and do it and you shall live. But the Jewish expert wasn't satisfied and he pressed on further. Effectively, he said, I know what the law says, Jesus. But what does it exactly mean when it uses the word neighbor? Who does it include? Who does it exclude? 
and who am I supposed to love? Well, Jesus responded by telling the famous parable, the Good Samaritan, that many of us know. And in the story, there's a Jewish man. He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was robbed and stripped and beaten by robbers. He was left to die on the road. Three men came along, but only one attended to him, the famous Good Samaritan. Jesus then asked, who do you think proved to be a neighbor to this dying man? The lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus then told him, go and do likewise. Now, seemingly a very nice and a straightforward self-contained Bible story, isn't it? With a simple lesson. Show mercy even to your enemies, like the good Samaritan who helped the Jew, and you shall inherit eternal life. Now, if you have been reading the rest of the Bible, and if you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will have sniffed that something is fishy here. This sounds out of tune with the gospel melody that we know, the gospel of grace. It sounds moralistic, doesn't it? And you are right, I think. But this is what we get when we read the passage on its own, taken out of its context. It becomes a passage that challenges us on our lack of concern for the poor and the needy. Now, I think the Bible does strongly advocate Christians to care for the poor, the orphans and the widows. We see that in James. But is this passage placed in Luke to teach us that? Is this what Jesus wanted to teach the Jewish lawyer? Well, let's survey Luke and have a look. So firstly, on point two, let's catch up with what Luke has been saying in chapter 1 to 9. From the birth of Jesus to his baptism, to his public ministry, Luke has been trying to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. All that Jesus has said and he has done indicates that he is truly the long-awaited Messiah who is sent by God to rescue people from their sins. And Jesus has been looking for people to respond to him with faith, trusting him and believing in him and following him. The Jews in general have rejected him, but his disciples seem to have begun to recognize him. And when that happened, Jesus revealed further what kind of Christ that he is. In 9.22, he says he will be rejected and he will suffer and he will die in order to rescue God's people. In 9.26, he says he will rise from the dead to rescue us for the next world, which is where his kingdom really is. And that is what he's rescuing his people for, rescuing people for eternal life with God. And then 9.51 is a huge turning point in the book of Luke, as well as a huge turning point in world history. For at that point, Jesus began his course to Jerusalem. And we know what will happen in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of his crucifixion and his death. And that's where Satan will be defeated. It is there that he will achieve what he came to rescue his people for. So ever since 951, Jesus has intensified his teaching and his urgency of following him. Because that the kingdom of God is coming very fast and is fast approaching, something of great cosmic significance 
a very unique moment in history is about to happen at Jerusalem when Jesus arrives. There is an urgent message to broadcast to the entire world. So his followers are even to leave the dead, to bury the dead we saw, and to proclaim the kingdom. They are to tell people about Jesus. Don't even look back, don't stop, don't talk. Just keep going. Don't even pack. Just go and proclaim the coming kingdom. It's urgent and it's coming. For people can now enter eternal life. But the question is, how? How can people enter eternal life and enter God's kingdom? How can one be saved and be brought into eternal life? So Jesus began to teach more now about eternal life. 1025, the lawyer asked, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And for the next, chap- next eight chapters, all the way to chapter 18, we see the rich ruler asking, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So to put it in its context, the Good Samaritan parable is about how one can enter this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in through his coming death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And then next, I would like you to pay attention to the episode that comes right before and right after the Good Samaritan. Firstly, take a look at the one that is right before. That is chapter 10, verse 21 to 24. Jesus said in verse 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Hint, hint, the Jewish law expert. And revealed them to little children. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the point is clear. It is only through the Son and by the Son that anyone can get to know God. It is the Son who reveals God to the people, and that is how important the Son is. So how does one obtain eternal life? Well, the Son must choose you and reveal God and His kingdom to you. So put simply, the entrance into eternal life revolves around only one person, the Son, it must involve Jesus Christ. Secondly, take a look at an episode that is after, verses 38 to 42. We'll just look at it briefly because there's a passage for next week. But take note, what did Mary do that was better than Martha? What did Mary do that was better than Martha? Chapter 10, verse 40, it says there, while Martha was busy serving, And then verse 39, the verse before says, Mary just sat at the Lord's feet and listened to him. Mary was simply quietly listening to Jesus. The point is clear. It is not about working hard. It is about listening to Jesus. And that's what all that matters, listening to Jesus. Now, When we put the three episodes together in the context of what Luke has been saying, what can can we conclude about the main point of the parable then? Well, the three episodes basically answer the same question. 
The kingdom of God is coming very soon. Jesus is coming near to Jerusalem. His kingdom will definitely come. But how can one enter this kingdom? How can one be saved and brought into eternal life? Well, the two sandwiching episodes, before and after, says that this is how you obtain eternal life. Firstly, eternal life hinges on Jesus. It is He who chooses. Secondly, you have to listen to Jesus. That is the key. And the parable in the middle presents to us the negative argument. This is how you cannot obtain eternal life. You cannot obtain it by your own achievement. The two sandwiching episodes tells us how important Jesus is to obtain eternal life. But they don't tell us why he is so important. The middle parable, however, shows us and proves to us, cutting through our heart, that there is no way that we can obtain eternal life by our own efforts. And that is why knowing and following Jesus is so important. Now, with that contextual framework, let us look at the Good Samaritan parable again. 10.25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice, first of all, the apparent contradiction in the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? If there is something that you need to do to obtain it, then it is no longer an inheritance, isn't it? It is your wage. It is what you deserve for your hard work. This reveals the lawyer's mindset concerning eternal life how he thinks he can be right with God. It is something that he can earn by his own effort. He just needs to figure it out and then work hard at it and he will get it. So Jesus pointed him to the law, verse 27, and Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, the Jew could have just laughed it off and, or felt sad or gone into despair on the basis that if that is really the case, he would never obtain eternal life for he hasn't and he couldn't love God in that way perfectly. No way. And he couldn't have loved his neighbor in that way, with all his heart and soul and strength. Not every single time, and not just every time, or not just occasionally, but every single time. But no, he did not react that way. He didn't go into despair. In his heart, he could have, he might have known that he has failed to do this and yet he seeks to justify himself. From offense, he then now moves into defense. He said, well, Jesus, it depends on what you mean by my neighbor. I have loved my neighbor. Jesus saw right through him and through him the parable. Through the parable, Jesus was effectively saying to him, well, looks like you really want to achieve eternal life on your own. Fine, if you want to do it that way. 
You need to achieve it by God's standard. Now tell me, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? The Samaritan. He showed mercy. Jesus says, spot on. You do know the answer. Now go and do likewise. So at this point, imagine the lawyer standing there, reluctantly speechless. You see, it is easy to think that we can love our neighbours. It's easy to think that I can love my neighbours. But all you need to do is to go and try to actually do it. Go and show genuine, practical love to your neighbours whom you actually hate or despise. And not just doing it once a year or once every few years. No, show this kind of love perfectly, lavishly, not occasionally, but on every possible occasion, with all your mind, with all your heart. It wouldn't take long for anyone to realize how ridiculously impossible that is. So you see, through the parable, Jesus is trying to convince those who try to justify themselves, who think they can earn their way into God's kingdom, who think of themselves as being good, to convince that they aren't and they can't. They actually fail to love their neighbour, not to mention to love God with all their hearts. And so am I in strength. How delusional for anyone to think that he has been or he can do it. Jesus grounded the lawyer straight back into reality. No more airy-fairy talk, but real action. Do it. And it all became clear. His heart became exposed. The problem with the priests and the Levite, and in fact with all of us, you see, is not that we don't love. We love. But we love ourselves. In fact, we love ourselves so much that we don't and we can't love God and love our neighbours. If that had been the man on the floor dying and with bruise, wouldn't you save yourself? You would, because you love yourselves. I love myself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. The parable shows us that this is outright impossible for sinful humanity, where self-preservation triumphs over self-sacrifice, where self-centeredness triumphs over other person's centeredness, where self-glory triumphs over glory to God and Him alone. So let me draw to a close with where we started. As a Christian, why do I and why should I rejoice that my name is written, is written in heaven? Why should I be thrilled each time I remember that? Well, because if my name is not written, there is utterly no other way 
no other way that my name can get there. The Good Samaritan parable reminds me and reminds us that by our own efforts, based on the sinful inclination of my selfish heart, I surely have not and cannot and will not love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, and love my neighbour as myself. No. So the only reason that I can obtain eternal life, that I can be forgiven and be in heaven with God, is because He has written my name in heaven. Eternal life can only be obtained through Jesus, who truly loved God all his life, and who was truly a neighbor even to his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus died my death, and he gave me new life in him. He gave me his spirit to dwell in me, transforming my mind, renewing my mind, giving me a heart, enabling, sanctifying me that I can now love my enemies. My name is written in heaven, and yet there is nothing that I can boast in. My life is scarred with sin. My works are filthy wrecks. No merit can I bring. Yet mercy filled Christ's heart. Love took him to the tree. It is grace alone which saves me. Christ's blood that sets me free. How can I not rejoice that my name is written in heaven? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of the Spirit of your Son in us as we hear your voice. Father, when we are confronted with our sin, when we are staring at our sin, coming to terms to how utterly futile our own efforts are in pleasing you, it is harder than we would like, Father, for it hurts our ego, it hurts our pride, it hurts the identity that we have put in ourselves and the confidence that we have in our own. But Father, we thank you for this painful work that you are doing in us. We thank you that you open our eyes to see our depravity. We thank you for opening our eyes to see the amazing grace and the mercy that you have shown towards us, your love that was lavishly poured upon us who do not deserve it. We thank you, Father. And we thank you that in Christ we can now find our identity for he has purchased us by his blood. We are now clothed in him. We are those who were once sinners but now transferred into the kingdom of your son. We have been forgiven. Thank you, Father. And thank you for feeding us your word. And we ask, Father, for, for the rest of the day, today and for the rest of the week, that you will fill us with thankfulness and rejoicing of what you have done for us in your Son, that our names are written in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.